Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. As we continue our study of the book of 2 Timothy, we find two very important verses in chapter 2. You will certainly want to look them up, and you will find them in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. This book that we are studying is a letter from the Apostle Paul to his protege, Timothy, a young man who is the pastor of a church. Paul is giving him direction on how he is to teach and preach and work with the congregants. And it follows through to these same rules for the pastors and teachers of our time. This lesson, all by itself, gives much information and direction for all of us who want the best of teaching and preparation for teaching. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 a.m. following a short period of fellowship. Each week, many people visit our class to hear the deep teaching brought to us by our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. We would love to meet you if you are in the area. Well, I see Doug is at the podium ready to begin today's lesson, so open your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Here now is our longtime teacher and good friend, Doug Brady. We have been studying the book of 2 Timothy, and it seems like forever since we've talked about 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, you'll remember, is the last book that Paul wrote. He's about to die. He knows he's going to die. And so these are his last words. And he starts in the first chapter to plead with Timothy to stop doing what he was doing. What was he doing? He was scared. And he was intimidated. And he was going to back off. He said, I don't want to end up in prison like Paul. I don't, they're going to arrest me if I do those kinds of things that they arrested Paul for. They'd say, well, you should have known better after your mentor was arrested and killed. And he was clearly intimidated. And you remember one of the things in verse 7 of chapter 1 that God said to him. He said, the Spirit has not given you the spirit of of fear, but of power and of love and of self-discipline or sound judgment. And we need to recollect that. Then we come to chapter 2, and Paul is telling Timothy that you must persevere. You must stay with it. You can't quit. You know, I heard the pastor say just this morning as I was driving in that Dr. Criswell used to say, if we miss one generation of spiritual insight, we'll become barbarous. And if you think about some of the sin that's going on in our nation, it's what animals and barbarians do. And it seems like they have no conscience. It's been completely seared. And he is saying to Timothy, I'm going to give you example after example of spiritual perseverance. And if you remember, 
He talked about the gift that he had given to Timothy. But he talked about the soldier who's once he's listed, tries his very best to consistently please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Now, I want you to think about this just a minute. Can the soldier say, you know, you know, I'm really tired of this. I'm not just not doing this anymore. Of course not. Then he talked about the professional athlete, or maybe not the professional, but the amateur athlete who is working towards the goal of the gold. And how he has cast to persevere. If he chooses not to, he wastes all the time he's spent because he's not going to win. He also then talked about the farmer who has to be diligent and continue to fight all the circumstances that work against him. And then Paul directed Timothy to two examples of people who have persevered and not lost faith, not lost heart. The first one was Jesus. And you know, Jesus is to be our example to everything that we do. But the next example was Paul himself. If I'm teaching you guys, I'm not going to say, well, just look at me and follow my example. I'm not going to do that. I'm not as confident in myself, I guess, as Paul was. Of course, if you look what all Paul has been through. But now he's going to give him some instructions to follow. First, he's going to tell him, This is what you should not do and you should not allow in your church, in your group, in your class, in your community. Don't allow this. Number two, here is what you should be doing. This is what it's all about. And this is where your focus should be. But before we get into that, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you so much for having me here today and that I get a chance to share with my friends and neighbors these concepts here that are in this book. Help us to understand what's going on here and what Paul is trying to say to Timothy and to us. Help me to share these concepts in a way that not only people can understand them, but the Holy Spirit can take them and burn them into their hearts so that this will be what we understand and what we know. And I thank you for that in advance because I know you will do it. Please keep the distractions from the room. And help me to be faithful in sharing what you have showed me. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What should a spiritual leader who wants to finish strong not do? Well, let's look at 2 Timothy 2.14. And I've decided today, because of differences in translations, to put both the New American Standard and the King James. The one on the bottom. Now, he starts off this way, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of hearers. Now, I can tell you at first blush, uh, this offended me as a lawyer. Wrangling about words? I mean, come on. But anyway, when we look at this, What's the first thing we want to come to see? Who is the them? Remind them. Now, this word remind, I want you to see it first. It's a verb that controls this whole sentence. Remind is in the imperative. What does it mean, imperative? Command. This is not a suggestion by the Holy Spirit. 
This is not a recommendation. It is an admonition or a command, an imperative. Remind them. Now, who is the them? Well, I think it includes the faithful men and those maybe who are not so faithful but who are believers, but who are members of Timothy's congregation in Ephesus. Here's what we, as this church, should not do. Remind them of these things. Now, the next thing he says is, I solemnly charge them. Do you see that? What does that seem to be saying? What's the implication there when he says, I solemnly charge you? We talked about remind them, that is members of the congregation, but what things? Do you remember weeks ago when we looked at verses 11 through 13, we talked about rewards and we talked about the lack of rewards. Do you remember that? It started with salvation, which everybody has and will never lose. It ended with the promise of eternal security. And even though you become faithless, I will be faithful. But in between, it talked about the rewards for the believers. And he's saying, remind those in your congregation of these things. The disappointment and the heartache you will suffer if you've done nothing for God even though you will be saved. You know, as you grow up and your parents say to you, well done, son. I really thought you did a good job. You can't think of anybody else you'd rather hear that from. Then as you get a little older, it's sometimes teachers, sometimes employers who you have respect for, others who say the kind of thing. But can you imagine standing in front of Jesus And him saying to you, well done, my faithful servant. There will never be a better well done in history except for that one or compared to that one. Now, that's the rewards. And so he makes this reminder to them to start with. And now he's going to talk about the solemn charge. What does that mean? I solemnly charge you in the presence of God. What is he trying to say? Well, he's going to say that twice in this book. The next time is in 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 2. He says here, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke with great patience and instruction. He's solemnly charging about God's word there. You're going to see he's going to make this solemn charge about the same subject matter here. He's going to talk about what not to do and then what to do here very soon. Now, did anyone else in the Scriptures that you can think of ever say anything like this? Jesus, what would Jesus say? Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you. When Jesus said that, that was meaning, hey, you guys better listen well now. Same thing for Paul. This is an extremely important, these two verses, statements Paul's going to make as far as he is concerned. So let's go back to verse 14. And I want you to see, because this charge in verse 14 contains three parts that I want you to see. Three parts. The first one is not to wrangle about words. 
not to wrangle about words. Now, what does that mean? Certainly, you know, when I grew up, I understood the word wrangle and wrangler. And uh, I spent a little time around horses. And I've been on a cattle drive or two, not drive, round up. But that's not what he's talking about. When he's talking, now, so that you know, if you were to look in the back of your notes today, and you might turn back there with me, the last couple of pages, you will see an appendix. And in this appendix, you will find the definitions of all of the key words in these two verses. And you look at this word, rango, logo, macheo, which means to contend about words, to wrangle about empty or trifling matters. That's what this word means, to talk about things that aren't that important. Now, there is a classic example in church history about this concept And we're going to talk about that in just a second. But I want you to see that this is not a one-time shot here in 2 Timothy. Paul gives these same instructions, a little different phraseology, in four other places where he's talking directly to pastors. Now, which books did Paul write directly to pastors? 2 Timothy and Titus. So if you look in 1 Timothy 1.4, look what he says. Nor pay attention to myths or endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is in faith. In chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, verse 7, he says, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit for old, only for old women. I'm not going to comment on that. It, on the 1 Timothy 6.4, that was a male voice who said, please do. Did you understand that? First Timothy 6, 4, he says, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, and evil suspicions. And then to Titus, and he wrote in chapter 3, starting in verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, and strife, and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning. Now notice that word factious. Do you see that there at the end? Factious. It means divisive. It's interesting to look at this for just a second. That word, pardon me? Was Philemon a pastor? No. Philemon was a slave owner. He owned Onesimus. And so he was sending that back. Now, that's my understanding. It never identifies him in the book as a pastor or an elder or a bishop. Yes? When it keeps saying about genealogies, I mean, the Old Testament has so much on genealogies. And they're saying it's not important. Why does the Old Testament have that? Oh, it has it. it, Well, because it's an important proof. And important there. And you say the Old Testament. What about in Matthew? And what about in Luke? There's genealogies. But these are something that went way beyond what is just the normal genealogy. Now, those genealogies that are in the Old Testament and New Testament, you can depend on for certain because they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. But others would try and, and raise other genealogies that would prove this or prove that, and there was no records to show it. And so 
Paul is, when he's talking about these things, he's talking about controversies over minutia, where the Bible never makes authoritative statements. Now, that's what's important to understanding either the genealogy question or this other question. If the Bible makes authoritative statements on the issue, then you follow those. If the Bible does not, and you start arguing about them, that's where it starts to get into these wrangling about words. Uh, That's where Paul says these endeavors are empty and trifling. There's a classic example of this. There used to be a debate a long time ago in the church, how many angels could dance on the head of a pin? Now, I tried to find a picture of this that would be amusing. I didn't find one. I found one idiot who had uh, drawn a picture of several angels dancing on top of a bowling pin. But that was obviously not the pin in the dark ages that they were talking about. They didn't have bowling pins, I don't believe. They were talking about a straight pin and how many angels could dance. But do you see, arguing about that, where does that... Well, you could say, Doug, we don't argue about things like that anymore. I've never heard anybody argue about how many angels could dance on the head of a pin. Yeah. Have you ever heard someone say, what does the Bible say about USOs, UFOs? Or what does the Bible teach about alien life forms? Other than, of course, angelic beings. That's the, these fall into the same category. I've heard somebody say, Doug, are you familiar with the biblical codes? The biblical codes. I don't think I am. Well, yes, listen. If you take certain passages of the Scripture and you take out the third and fourth letter of every word and you put it together, or you take out every tenth word or every even-numbered word, and then it has a message. Or if you look at Genesis chapter 11 and you read it backwards towards chapter 1, it'll be the same message as in Revelation. That, I'm afraid, falls into this category of wrangling about words. Those things. I'm glad someone's not here today. So I can say the same kind of thing is if you're wrangling about whether your pet will be going to heaven with you and getting raptured. Setting dates in the future is kind of the same thing. And so you need to understand these are the kinds of things. I, now some of these may, I may have picked because they were a little bit humorous. But these controversies or debates are more often than not end in mindless speculation that does nothing to advance the cause of Christ in our time. Yes. Taking out of context, would that be part of this? Yes. You know, you should never interpret a verse out of context. And you never should really interpret a word out of context. Uh, Right before we get to chapter 3, we're going to talk about one of the most controversial words in the Bible these days. Translated, or the Greek word would be apostasia. And what does that mean? Apostasia. Well, that was a transliteration of the Greek word. You think it just means apostasy? You ought to talk to Dawn because she knows. Uh, no, half the time. Yeah, well, obviously, I wouldn't tell you to talk to yourself about it, and I noticed how wrong you were in your understanding. <laughs> but it's interesting. You remember that word we looked at, factious? Do you know what the Greek word is for that? Heretikos. 
What English word do we get from heretikos? Heretic. You're exactly right. Now, let's look at the second and third parts of this admonition here. He tells you that when the result of this wrangling is which is useless and leads to ruin of the hearers. Useless here meaning non-productive or good for nothing. But now that's one thing to have these things useless and these discussions useless. But now there's a detriment here when it talks about the ruin of the hearer. That's something much more important to consider. And that's what God is saying is going on. This word translated ruin originally meant to turn over or to turn under. It would be used often to describe plowing. But its meaning changed over time before it was used in the Greek New Testament. And it came to the idea of overthrowing. Overthrowing. I want you to look at a passage in Second Peter, the other time this word is used in the Greek New Testament. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, who can tell me what word in there is this same word translated as ruin? Can you see it? What it would be? Destruction is the word. You see, this has now become a strong word. And it's saying it can destroy the hearers if you're doing this. And so I want you to stop. That's the concept. Don't do this. It's not going to help. So now he's told the people that these pastors, and especially Timothy and through Timothy us, I don't want you doing this. I don't need this wrangling. It's going to result in bad things to happen to my people. So stop it. Number two, let me tell you what I want you doing. This is now what is important. So let's go to uh, chapter 2, verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Or study to show yourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, which is the way I first memorized it. This is a key verse in this chapter. This is a key verse in this book. This, the concepts of this verse will be spoken of again when we get to chapter 3 and chapter 4. What is he trying to tell us? Now, first, I want you to look at that word translated in the NASB, be diligent, and in the uh, KGV as study. That is a verb. Can you tell me? Whether it's declarative, interrogative, subjective, or imperative. It is imperative. It is a command. Here again, should the believer have a choice here? No. no. Now, I want you to notice this word. It's spudazo. And the spudazo carries the meaning of intense effort or motivation. Now, the translators of the New American Standard... And the King James Version had to make choice how to translate it. And there's two concepts or parts to this word. One is the intention or motivation, and one is the activity. What did the New American Standard choose to translate it with? The intention or motivation. Be diligent. 
What did the King James choose to translate it with? The activity involved, to study. When you read both of these translations together, you get the full meaning of the word. You read just one, you get half of it. Does that tell you something? Now, be diligent. You want to be highly motivated. It involves this concept of working hard to accomplish one's best, but it also includes an attitude of consistency. It's not a one-time event. It is a consistent event in your life, and it's very, very important. Now, when we look at this concept of studying, being diligent to study, is that something outside of this book in 2 Timothy mentioned anywhere else? Is it just mentioned in the New Testament, or is it mentioned in the Old Testament? Well, let's see. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 9. These words which I'm commanding to you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. He's saying it like four or five different ways, but what is he saying? Do it all the time. Do it diligently. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your door and house and on your gates. In other words, I want your family enmeshed in God's Word. Look at Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Joshua 1.8. Yes, sir. Uh, on your prior verse, on your foreheads, I think that's why the Jewish people... I think they do. Go back to that verse. Now, notice this. You shall bind them on, as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals. Does it say they shall be frontals? As frontals. In other words, so present in your mind that you've got, but they always take it wrong and carry it to the extreme. And so, one other passage, something that David wrote in Psalm 1 2. But his delight, this is the man of God, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. So, what are we to be diligent to do? We want to break this down. What's the next one? Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. I want you to think about that. If we were all of a sudden, an angelic messenger showed up over here and he said, you all are going to have the chance today to present yourself before God. Would you be rejoicing or would you be fearful? I would be scared. Let me tell you, you should be scared. Our Lord's approval is our overall goal. That's the only one we're trying to prove. What he is telling us is that he is the only one we need to please. Now, I want you to think about that. This is, I guess I can use myself as an example. Who should I teach for? The Lord God. No, should I come in here and be trying to please this person or that person? or the, No. Who should you live for? You. Now, this is a very, this has very strong applications in a person's life. I want you to think about this. Should a man 
seek to live in a way that's pleasing to his wife that's not pleasing to God? Should a woman try to live in a way that's pleasing to her husband that's not pleasing to God? No. Her primary responsibility is to please God. You see, there is a hierarchy of priorities in a person, in a believer's life. God stands number one. The spouse is number two, and the children are number three. Do you ever see people who elevate children above spouse? That's not God's plan. That is against what God wants. I could go on and say some things, but I won't. Probably get in trouble anyway. But uh, I want you to know that the approval is what we should strive for. And that approves, and that He approves our intentions and what we accomplish, both approval of intentions and accomplishments. That's where we should be going. It's a great temptation for great men of God to seek to please men, especially large numbers of them, than to, so that they can receive critical acclaim. All right. What's the next thing in this verse as we continue to unpack it? Paul tells Timothy that this endeavor to diligently study God's Word should be taken on as a workman. A workman. What does that mean, a workman? This energeo, which we have here, creates a word picture. Two things. Endurance coupled with perseverance. Endurance coupled with perseverance. You think about it. Perseverance is the mindset of the godly worker. Endurance is the result of that mindset. You need to see that this word stresses the laborious nature of the task as opposed to the skill to perform it. Now, let's understand that. The laborious nature of the task, it talks about not the skill. You know, can we say, well, you know, I've never studied Greek. I've never studied Hebrew. I've never studied Middle Eastern archaeology. I'm not really familiar with the geography over there. I don't have the skill to do this. Oh, he's not talking about skill. He's talking about perseverance. He's talking about endurance, the laborious nature of the task we are to undertake. I say that for this reason. When we talk about skill, we're not talking about a spiritual gift. We're not talking about a talent that comes from us with birth. Can God give you the skill to do something well? Give me an example in the Bible anywhere where that happened, where God specifically gave a man or a woman a skill to do something well. Oh, tabernacle. Could that be in Exodus chapter 35? Let's look at that a second. Then Moses said to the sons of Israel, See, the Lord has called by the name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and in knowledge and in all craftsmanship. Now, where did those things, wisdom, understanding, knowledge, and craftsmanship come from? The Holy Spirit. He's filled him with it. To make designs for working in gold and in silver and in bronze and in cutting the cutting of stones for settings and in the carving of wood and as to perform every inventive work. Do you see what's going on here? 
God is giving this man the skills to do all of this, the knowledge to do all of this. He didn't have it before, and he also has put in his heart to teach both he and Aholiab, the son of Ahashamach of the tribe of Judah, pardon me, tribe of Jan, and he was filled them with skill to perform every work of an engraver, of a designer, of an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet material and fine linen and a weaver as performers of every work and maker of designs. Do you not see the amazing part of that? God gives them the skill to do that. He didn't have it before. This wasn't something when he was born with. This was something God wanted to use this man. This man was available to God. And God gave him all of these skills, the wisdom, the knowledge, and the craftsmanship to do this. Can God still do that with you? Yes, he can. Doug, I believe that, that God, since uh, Israel is, is his people, I believe he gave them those skills over and over and over because they were moved all over the world. They go in, they're very successful, then they get displaced, they have to do something else. He may have. It doesn't say it in the scriptures that they did, but he very well may have. But I also think, David, the creation of the tabernacle was a one-time event in history until we came to the, the Solomonic Temple. And I think he gave it again, and it talks about it in the Scriptures of how he did that. But many of the things, I think, that were used in the tabernacle, created for the tabernacle, were incorporated into the temple. Obviously, all the furnishings were. So we need to think of that. Now, well, yes, Moses, most people don't understand, Moses was taken up to, and he was allowed to see the tabernacle in heaven. The tabernacle. Who went into the Holy of Holies with a basin of blood, Damaris, into the Holy of Holies in the temple in heaven, the tabernacle in heaven? Jesus. Carrying his own blood, sprinkling it on. Let's get to this next word or phrase. It's very important. Accurately handling the word of truth or rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, here again, the translators of the New American Standard and the King James differed in their goal in the translation. The New American Standard tended to get the current meaning of that word where the King James wanted to get the meaning that originated or started in that word. It had to do with a craftsman who could cut straight. But really, it really this word arose around stonemasons who they're going to cut a stone that meets two criteria. It's going to look straight and properly cut, but it's also cut to fit in the specific spot in which it's supposed to go. So that was the twofold. Then it came to being able to be extremely skillful, accurately handling the Word of God. What does that tend to refer back to? We don't want any wrangling. We want accurate handling of the Word of God. If it's not there, then God didn't put it in the Word of God. And if God didn't put it in the Word of God, what is that telling us? We don't need to know it. So, this is now the key word in this. And most scholars will teach that this word instructs the teacher, the preacher, the expositor, and the like to strive for the truth, the truth rightly, unabridged, and straightforward. You say what the Bible says. 
I will tell you that I strive to do that. Sometimes I get in trouble for doing that, but that's okay. If the Bible says it, I'm going to try and teach it to you as best I can. That's what we need. We need teachers. We need preachers. We need pastors, expositors who will do that. The church in our nation, the churches in our nation are extremely lacking in that area. And they don't teach, well, to put it in a word, they're woke. Now, this concept here uh, of this word, accurately dividing, would bring to mind a phrase that is, utter, that is uttered almost every day in the courts, at least of our state now, still. Do you swear to spell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? That's this concept here. Tell the whole truth, the truth, and nothing but the truth. If we want to find the truth, we have to go to the sole source of truth. And that's something that's being said here. The Bible is the source of truth. Well, what about things we can observe? Can we not observe things? The Bible is the source of truth. Your observations many times can fool you. You know, don't you remember that people used to be on a boat and they would look out and say, it's obvious that the earth is flat. I mean, just look. You're an idiot if you don't think that's flat. That's not round. That's flat. I can remember reading about this idiot French, I shouldn't say that, this French physicist who said there is no way that a human being could ever travel more than 30 miles per hour because the air would simply rip his flesh off the bones. Uh, They're basing it on their observations. Now, will liberals and progressives argue with us on this point? Absolutely, they will. It's, but it, I think it's under, under, understandable to realize or ask ourselves the question, why will they argue with us on this point? Because they don't like the truth. Now, I want you to think about this. Let me give you the two most prominent examples in our society today. They don't like the truth that marriage is only between one man and one woman. They don't like that. And so this can't be the sole source of truth. They don't like the idea that the gender God gave you is the gender that you are, and you're nothing else, no matter what you think. They don't like that. And so they don't want to accept this concept. So let's look at a few final thoughts before we finish today. The church is to be about providing her congregants teaching and preaching that has positive and practical impact. These congregants, uh, along with their pastor teachers, must zealously pursue God's approval and not that of any others. We must be about God's approval. That approval is based in major part on one's knowledge of scriptural concepts and directions and their application to their own lives. We need to come to see that. Then their ability to accurately transfer those concepts to others as it sets out in 2 Timothy 2.2. Now, I want you to consider an example of that. It's a man by the name of Ezra. Some of us are not too familiar with Ezra. He wrote a book that's in the Bible that bears his name. Most 
conservative scholars believe that he also wrote First and Second Chronicles. And he led the second group of Jewish exiles to return from Babylon to Israel. More important than that, he was a key player in the compilation of the New Testament canon around 400 A.D. We have our New Testament, I said New Testament, Old Testament canon. Remember, the canon means these are the books that are inspired. That's, that's what that means. When I was a kid, I thought I wanted the canon until my mother gave me a Bible. <laughs> but his plan for his life followed the same principles that are outlined here for Timothy. Look in Ezra chapter 7 verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of God and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. In order for these actions or expeditions to be significant, what part of this plan of his is most important? And I want you to think about this. Three things he's saying to do. Study, to practice, and to teach. Which is most important? If you don't study, can you practice or teach? If you study but you come up with the wrong things, can you really practice or teach? Study is the foundation upon which a life is built. Do you see that? It's also important to see the order. He says, I'm going to practice it in my own life before I try to teach it to others. You know, think about the pastor who's there and say, well, the Bible teaches that once you get married, you're not to have sex with any other partner. But he's doing it. Does that guy, can he teach you anything? You're going to listen to what he says? And does it not affect everything else he says? We have to understand that. That's, you know, another Old Testament prophet who proclaimed a, a deep damage to his people, and he was very concerned about it, was Hosea. And in Hosea 4, 6, he says, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Now, I want you to think carefully. Here's a lawyer question. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of... I hear some people saying wisdom, that's in chapter 9. But in chapter 1, it says knowledge. Now, the, next, the final question I want to ask is, what is your regimen? Now, he's going to get mad at me, I think, for asking him. But Neil, do you participate in a Bible study during the weeks, days of the week, other than coming Sunday morning? Every day. About what time? 5 a.m. every day. How many of the rest of us do that? Yeah. We have to study, and that's world-class athletic type study right there. Do you see that? Now, I've embarrassed him, and I'm sorry, but it's an important point for us to realize. If Neil can do it, why can't you? Well, he's too busy. Oh, yeah, you're sleeping. <laughs> Could you have an alarm? Can you afford an alarm clock? Okay, could you not wake up in time for, well, if you, could you not find a time in the day that you could set aside to study your Bible every day? I don't think those qualify. I'm worried about which angels those are. You know, I'm a bank examiner. There's a large bank up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that the bank president has a, a Bible study every morning Sound like a good bank to me. Yeah, I would hope you give high marks to that bank, Rena. Now, 
You have to answer that question. This was a command. You need to see it. It's there to talk to you about. You need to see it and how important it is. This is key. You, if you don't know the scriptures, you can't be used by God. You've got to learn them, practice them, and then God can use you that way. This life changing people. You've got to make a decision here what you're going to do. And then you have to carry it through. But now there's one other little instance to this question that you need to consider. Going back, these words that he used, were they declarative or imperative? They were commands. If you don't do it, what does that make your actions or your choice? Disobedience. And there's a little simple little word I've learned all through my life that equals disobedience. Sin. You mean if I don't study the Bible, that's sin? Absolutely. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we could meet. I thank you for the time that you were with us. I pray that you help us to understand the importance of what is going on here. Now, Father, I pray that you will heal my wife and you will get her well. To bring her a full recovery and that you will do it soon. She suffered long enough, at least in my opinion. And Father, in the same way our nation has suffered long enough, and you know the wickedness and the pain and the hurt that comes from that and how hardened hearts have become, but you can change all of that. You have the power to bring about a revival in our nation, and I pray that you will do that. And I ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.